0: Lord Jesus, thank you. That song just keeps reverberating in my head. Holy forever. And even God, right now, as we approach your word, we just recognize that we approach your word with a posture of reverence, with maybe even, hopefully even a tone of the fear of the Lord. That God, you have a way of speaking into us. And right now, in this moment, God, we don't wanna miss the incredible invitation from you for us to be challenged for us to be convicted, for us to be comforted, for us to, whatever your purpose is in this moment, you have a purpose for us. And so I pray, God, right now, that all together, collectively, the people of Cornerstone, those watching online, those right here in this space, God, that we would just unplug from all the distractions of this world, from the heat of the day, and that we would just rest in the cool breeze of your word. We believe this is living and active and your word will not return void, so we submit and we lean forward as we dig into Romans five. Have your way, King Jesus. We pray this together in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Have you ever had like a moment of great toil or agony, and maybe you just felt like, what do I do now? I thought things were going a certain way. What do we do now? I want to let you into a little moment I had. It was on the October 26, 2002, a day that is forever cemented in my brain. We were actually at a church. Uh, they called it a harvest party, and there was square dancing, and all sorts of really fun stuff happening. It was actually at Mr. and Mrs. Hadley's barn. Fun fact, two of their kids now go to church here. I didn't know that back at the time, but we were uh, Vince Roos and the Hadley's uh, ten. we were at this square dancing party, but me and my brothers, we weren't there to dance. You see, on that day, there was the game six of the 2002 World Series. And on the, dri- on the drive to that game, Barry Bonds had just hit a home run to go up 5-0 to zero against K-Rod, the best reliever in baseball. We were up 5-0 and we were sitting around this fire listening to somebody brought a radio and we were listening to it, there were, it was 5-0, Russell Ortiz was pitching, there was two back-to-back singles and Dusty Baker decides to start managing and what I would, I would say overmanage. And he comes out and he pulls out our pitcher and he brings in this guy named Felix Rodriguez And next thing I know, three run homer, scores five to three. Get out of the inning, next inning, more heartbreak and we end up losing the game six to five. And I remember sitting around the fire with my brothers, (sighs) reflecting on the season, knowing we're going to Anaheim for game seven and most likely we're gonna lose and just thinking, what do we do now? (laughs) We just wasted so much energy and time Barry Bonds is just getting older. How many home runs does he need to hit for us to win the World Series? And really feeling like as a teenager, we were really in quite a lot of agony and suffering. Any fellow fanatics here that have felt the suffering? This morning, I believe that as we look at Romans, we're looking at a moment, and Paul was writing to the church in a moment of surprising suffering. You see, we just read through Romans chapter one through four and Paul has wrote about the life that we have in Christ, the incredible good news of the gospel, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is a power of God to save. And he writes about this incredible invitation of you and me and and the early church into faith in Jesus and through faith in Jesus, we get new life. We get peace with God, we get justification by faith. God looks at us and he sees us as righteous and as Paul digs in to chapter five, he goes from explaining the gospel to talking about what the gospel looks like. And I don't know about you, but as I think about this and as I think about in the West, what we would call the prosperity gospel, I'm preparing myself to hear all of the good things that I'm about to get. Like, if you follow Jesus, everything is going oh man, you're gonna get so rich, you're gonna get that, you're gonna get a, a, a promotion, you're, uh, everything's gonna be safe and comfortable, and I'm, and I'm anticipating this in Romans chapter five. And at first, it sounds like we're going there. Look at what it says here in verse one. It says this, it says, therefore, in light of all of chapters one through four, In light of this good news of the gospel, he says since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. This peace with God is a Hebrew word shalom. It's it's not just about the absence of violence or the absence of chaos. It's about a restoration, a redeeming, a making all things right. An active, proactive work of God in our life, in our community in our world. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This sounds good, this is exciting, I'm getting excited. Oh man, gospel life. Through him, Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith. Oh yeah. As one of the writers in the devotional wrote, we now have access to God. The, the, the veil that separated us and the Holy of Holies has been torn. We have access to God ourselves. This is all good news. We have access to Abba, Father. And into this grace, I love the way Matt read this, into this grace in which we now what? Stand. We stand in grace. And we rejoice. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Remember last week we talked about hoping against hope. We talked about being a people of hope. He's continuing this conversation. Remember, we're reading a letter. We, can't, we don't have the time to read all of Romans together for a sermon, but we're continuing the conversation that we are people who hope against hope. Our hope is of God. And then I'm getting excited, and then he says, Not only that, <laughs> but we rejoice in our suffering. I don't know about you, but as I read that, and I picture the early church hearing this letter from Paul, I imagine this response. We do what? (laughs) We do what? You're telling me God in his providence, he just just laid out the incredible blessings of following him, our sufferings are not going away? On the contrary, as we think about our sufferings, we rejoice. And it's interesting to me, as Paul starts to dig in to the implications of the gospel, the implications of chapter one through four, and the way that it uh, uh, plays out in our life, that this is the beginning of the argument. He's writing to the early church, I imagine he's anticipating that if you know the early church in Rome was a mixture of Gentiles and Jews, predominantly Gentiles, because the Jews had actually been kicked out of Rome for a while, and they come back, and there's all of this chaos, and, there's, and they're poor, and they're suffering. They're being martyred, and they're hearing this gospel, and they're wondering, okay, if this is true, why are we still suffering? And I believe Paul is getting straight in to this moment of suffering. It seems to me, he wants to start off our understanding of gospel life with this argument that in gospel life, we rejoice in our sufferings. Question mark, exclamation point. We rejoice in our sufferings? Why? Why would we do that? Who would embrace suffering? Seems kind of sick. Well, thanks for asking. I think Paul answers that question. First, the why. Why do we rejoice in our sufferings? Here's the why. Because God's love is inside the suffering believer. Because God's love is inside the suffering believer. This reality, and this is is paramount to our understanding of the suffering and what is happening in it. Look at verses, the second half of three and following. He says this, he just said, uh, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, and then he says, knowing that suffering produces endurance, And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love has been poured into. This this word for poured into, it's it's this word of of unending, never-ending, lavishing love. It's not like God's like, well, I'm just gonna give you enough to get by. I'm just going to give you enough for you to be able to, to make it through. No, it says it's poured out, it's lavish. Uh, I picture it like an overflowing cup and the love of God is poured out, it's given to us. And not just in that moment, we are given the Holy Spirit in the midst of the suffering to continue to do its work in us. It's this, what we would call already, not yet. He says this, and then he defines the love of God. I love this because we, we have lots of definitions of love, right? I mean, I, I love an In-N-Out hamburger, and I also love my wife. Is that the same love? It depends on how hungry you are, okay. We do have marriage counseling here if you need that. It's just right in the other room. Paul wants us to understand and this is so important to the suffering believer. It's so important for the person who's pausing and says, we do what? Why would we rejoice? He says, because the love of God has been poured into your hearts. And listen, this is the love. He says, for while we were still weak, this word for weak is, means like, like unable. There's nothing that we can do. We are all unrighteous. We are without any ability. While we were still weak, at the right time, I love the NIV, it says, at just the right time. Christ died for the ungodly. Historians look at the timing of Christ's death. It is so interesting, if you were to do a study on the actual context of of the way that, that the language of humanity was at the time, of the way that the Romans had built roads. Many have said that the perfect timing of Christ's death was the perfect timing for the gospel to go out to the whole world, not just to Jerusalem, but to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. As we talked about last week, in God's perfect providence, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Somebody might die for a good person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows, or some translation says, God demonstrates his love for us. This is the kind of love that's poured into the suffering believer's heart. While we were still sinners, Christ did what? Died for us. This love of God. Paul's framing this, he's, he's reminding us that this demonstration of love, the way of suffering, is best pictured because God suffered. God didn't just say, you will suffer for my good and your suffering will produce perseverance and character and hope and good luck. Actually, he started it all. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Summarize of this beautiful picture of love is this it's unending, it's undeserved, and it's unreasonable. It's unending, it's lavish, it's poured out, it's undeserved. While we were still weak, there's nothing that I can do to deserve this kind of love poured out, and it's unreasonable. Why would God save a sinner, an ungodly person like me? And Paul wants us to know the why. As the believer is suffering, it's that important that they understand that the, that very love of God is poured, it's inside of me. It's given to me, it's, it's graced to me. And so we have the why. And the suffering believer reads this and starts to say, okay, God, God's, God's, God's gone through what I'm going through. He suffered the most ultimate way I get that but is that it? Is there more than just the why? Is there something happening in me? That, is there reason for this suffering? Is there reason for this circumstances? Is, there, is God doing something? And Paul says yes, there's also a work that's happening and, and the work is, is, is the love of God doing something in you. And Paul wants us to understand this is that God's love does something. God's love, the the love poured into the hearts of the believer, poured into the hearts of the person who's wondering, what do we do now? It's actually doing something in us. And the first thing Paul wants us to know is that Christ died, this love, I'm, I'm using a synonym, Christ's death is a picture of his love. Christ died to save believers from hell. This is a reality he writes about here. Look at what it says in verse nine. This love of God poured into you that Paul wants the suffering believer to know, the suffering person to know, he says this in verse nine. Notice the tense here. It says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, justified. God looks at us and says you are righteous by his blood. His blood is a reference to his death. Since this reality has happened, for all who put their faith in Christ, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. How much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? We talked about this, if you, the righteousness of God relates to his justice, his need, because God is holy, as we sang about today, he must deal with our sin. It's been said, we are saved from God by God. It's the incredible, unreasonable truth of the gospel. And in this day and age, we have a hard time with this four letter word, hell. But what's interesting is if you go and you read the words of Jesus, one of the things he talked about the most was the wrath of God. If we read the writings of the early apostles, they wrote about this. If, if you've ever wanted to really dig in, there's this great book by a guy named Francis Chan and another guy named uh, Preston Sprinkle who wrote about this reality that God saves us from hell. Says this, it's a little lengthy quote, but I thought it was really good. He said, I would love to think, as some have suggested, that the Bible doesn't actually say a whole lot about hell. I would love to stare at my friend's face when he asked that question we all fear, do you think I'm going to hell? And to say, no, there's no such place. Jesus loves you and wants to heal your pain and turn your sorrow into gladness. But the New Testament writers, I love this, didn't have the same allergic reaction to hell as I do. Perhaps they had a view of God that is much bigger than mine. A view of God that takes him at his word and doesn't try to make him fit our own moral standards and human sentimentality. A view of God that believes what he says even when it doesn't make perfect sense to us. Once again, as we work through the scriptures, Paul here is writing about the realities of the wrath of God and he's writing to the suffering believer who's right in that moment suffering to give them a perspective about what God's love has done talk more about this in a little bit as we think about the so what, but I think it's important that we don't miss the fact that Paul is writing about this reality, but not just about what we're saved from, also what we're saved to. Paul uses some rhetoric here as he says, once he uses the word much more, there's some parallelism going on, and he says this in verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, in the same way that we're saved, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. This shall we be is a pointing to something ahead. It's not the reality right now in this moment. It's calling to the when the Lord returns and makes all things right, and and we shall be saved we shall be reconciled. This word for reconciled is a relational reality. That the beauty of the Garden of Eden, the, the, the purpose of when God created us in his image, he created us to be in perfect relationship with him. And then in Genesis 3, we fall, we fall short, and we follow the whole story of scripture, and it all points to Jesus. It all points to him saving us and reconciling us back into paradise. So what Paul is wanting us to understand about this truth, about why we rejoice in our sufferings, is that not only did, did Christ die to save believers from hell, Christ also died to bring believers home. To bring believers home. Jesus talks about the parable of the lost son. He squanders his wealth. And he has this moment of revelation where he says, if I just went back to my father and I didn't need to be a son anymore, I just want to be a slave and it'd be better than me. He's, he's sitting in this parable of the prodigal son. It'd be better for me than sitting here eating the scraps of these pigs. And in the, in the parable that Jesus tells about the heart and the love of God, you see the son coming and God sees his, the father sees his son and he picks up his Tunic, And he runs to him and he welcomes him and he, and he gives him his ring and he anoints him and he, and he celebrates. And he says, my, my son who was lost is found. This is the picture of salvation. It's the picture of the length that the father will go to. It's the picture of, of what we're invited into that we're not just saved from the wrath of God. We're saved to paradise, the very presence of God. We're called back into this in deeply wonderful relationship. Now it can be easy to read this and say okay, so really we just need to like grip it and get through it because this is temporary and so nothing good right now but someday I'll be in heaven. (laughs) But Paul anticipates this. Not only does he speak to the suffering believer about the hope to come, that's a theme in this passage, about the reality of heaven, but he also speaks to that very moment. Not only did Christ die to save believers from hell and to bring believers home, hear this, Christ died to give us life now. What did he say? The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to bring life and give it abundantly. Look at the tense in verse 11. Verses nine and 10, he's talking about, he's looking ahead to what will be, what shall be, what we will be saved to. And then verse 11, he says, more than that, not just that suffering believer, not just that, wait, there's more. We also, here's that word, he's tying it all back. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have, look at what that word says, now. Receive reconciliation. Turn to the person next to you and say, Right now. Now. Right now, in this moment, we have this. It's this perspective. And I believe we get little glimmers and tastes of this. We call this the already, not yet, that God in his graciousness pours out these little tastes of what's to come. Every month, on the first Sunday of the month, we get a little taste of this. It's called communion. We get to eat of the bread and drink of the cup with fellow believers that is tasting of what is to come and communing with God. I believe we get a taste of this every single morning as we see a sunrise. Every single night as you see a sunset, as you, as you think about just the blessings of your family, as you think about the blessings of breath itself and the work that God is doing. And as I was reading this text and thinking, what do we do with this? What does gospel life look like for us cornerstone here in Chachilla, California, and in the valley? We got the why, we got the work, what do we do? And I believe what Paul wants us to understand is that we need to shift the focus from me to Jesus. The response, because of the gospel, because of the unending, undeserved, unreasonable love poured into us, our response is what? Worship. We rejoice in Christ. Not in our circumstance that is temporary, whether it's the highest of the mountains or the deepest peak of dark valleys, I believe Paul is writing to the church. He's writing to you, writing to me in those moments to say, we do what? That there's something that happens when we rejoice. There's something that happens when, despite our circumstances, we confess our faith and believe that God is real, that he is holy, that the evidence, what are we seeing today as we open up our worship service? It's all around me, and I just need to open up my eyes to paradise. And perhaps we just need this reorientation of our perspective. And I believe here as we think about these three points, there's really three great responses that we can do in those moments when we're suffering. The first, as we, how do we rejoice in Christ? We rejoice in what he's done. Done, period. It's been paid for, I love the song, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left its crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Part of our rejoicing is just believing that all of the work of salvation has been done. And so we just rejoice and we rest in this truth. I believe a great parallel text to this passage in Romans is in 1 Peter chapter one. Look at what Peter says. He says, blessed be the God and Father, look at him rejoicing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy. Mercy, not getting what we deserve. He, God, has caused us to be born again. (laughs) To be born again, to have new life, gospel life. What to a, I love this, we sing this song often here. Living, Hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Earlier in Romans 5, Paul says that we have that we have life because of the life of Christ. He's our our intercessor. And and, and what does this life look like? He says to an inheritance. Remember, we're children of God, we're not slaves, that is imperishable. It, It doesn't spoil, it doesn't go away. You can't undo it, undefiled, unfading, the more of these unwords. and it's kept in heaven for who? You. And our teaching team, Steve Moody, one of our teaching team members, said this. I thought it was really good. He says, "If God never does anything else for me other than what He has already done, He has done more good for me than I could ever hope or imagine. Think about just the reality of what Christ has done. No matter how my life turns out in the greater perspective of eternity and the hope of paradise, I can just rejoice in what God has done and the hope of heaven. Rejoice in Christ in what he's done Remember the cross. Remember the resurrection. Sing. This is why all of our songs that we sing are typically about what Jesus has done. Second, rejoice in where he's taking you. Rejoice in where he's taking you. Look at what it says in verse five of 1 Peter. as, As Peter keeps unpacking this, he says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Or I love what he says in Corinthians, he says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away. I'm in a moment of what do we do now? This wasn't the way I wanted my life to go. I wasn't ready for this kind of suffering. Our inner self, inside the spirit, the love of God that has been poured into us, we believe this, is renewed. Day by day. This is called, we we use a word called sanctification about this process. For this, look at what he says here. This light, momentary affliction is doing something, is preparing us, look at this, for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I could go off and we could do another whole sermon on that. Maybe just reflect on that, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And as we look, not to the things that are seen, not to maybe this overwhelming moment, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're here and they pass away, but the things that are unseen Are eternal. I've been reading this book. It's called The End of the Christian Life by a guy named Todd Billings. It's about the hope of heaven. In this book, there's one chapter where he talks about what he would call the prosperity gospel. And he talks about how, because we've been so inclined to just reject what we would call the prosperity gospel, which is believe in God, everything will go good, that we miss the fact that the gospel is a prosperity gospel, but the prosperity is a little different. In the prosperity of this world. And he shares the story of this guy named Claude. Claude is uh, in hospice. And he's having a hard time breathing, he has breathing help. And he talks about how all the doctors, everyone, it's all about just saving Claude's life. That prosperity for Claude is about continuing to live. And he shares this story that I wanted to share with you that I think is a picture of the kind of gospel prosperity, the kind of hope that we have together. He says this, but Claude in his final scene on his earthly life gave his family a taste of a different kind of prosperity. It says that in his final moments of life, it said that he took off his mask And his family was surrounded by him and he said, what is my only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but I belong body and soul to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. And in the story it says, he witnessed to the prosperity that cannot be measured by status, a bank statement, or even a lifespan in an ordinary hospital room with no video cameras or journalists, he embraced his weakness. He pulled off the mask, and those gathered both gasped for breath and yet breathed in the scent of shalom. Wholeness, the peace of someone who belongs to Jesus Christ. Beloved, I look out in this room, I see loved ones that have sat in this very same room at memorial services. And some of the most beautiful moments of prosperity has been in the celebration of the resurrection of the dead. That there is much more to our life than this life. And don't miss the call of the Christian confession of faith that we rejoice in where Jesus is taking us and where he's taken our loved ones. Finally, rejoice in what he's doing. Rejoice in what he's doing. There's also something happening here. I love that Paul goes right to the, he says, suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, character hope, and then he gets into the love of God, that God's love is doing something right now in this moment. First Peter 1, 6, he continues, he says, in this, he says, you rejoice. This is an imperative, it's not like a, if you feel like it, rejoice. It says, when the, when the, when the mood is right, no, he says, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that, look at the purpose, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found what? To result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As Romans eight eighteen says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present Time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Rejoice in what God is doing. I love in our reading plan, one of our own, Touche, wrote a wonderful devotion on Romans eight. She said this, in suffering I seem to ask, why me? Why now? It's not fair. What for? I didn't deserve this, but in reality, why not me? Why do I question God who is holy and true in all his ways and know exactly what he is doing in my life? My focus is all wrong and it points me to my human limitation, drops me to my knees in prayer and dependence on God. See, I think one of the problems is in these moments when we think we do what? is perhaps we've put our hope in the wrong things. Perhaps in those moments of suffering, maybe you relate to young teenage Logan who had all of his hope in an idol, a baseball team. And when they let me down, they weren't there. But God in his love, and that while we were still sinners, he died for us and his work, is doing something in us. And so no matter what may be happening, whether it's the greatest of days or the worst of days, we are called into a perspective that as the great hymn that the church has been singing for hundreds of years would say, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, the trials, should persist, let this blessed assurance prevail that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. And so as you think about how to respond, my prayer is that you would respond with rejoicing because of what Christ has done. We need to move from being a me-centered church to a Christ-centered church. And the more that we worship him, I believe the more that everything else fades. Would you pray with me? Father God, I just want to say thank you Thank you for this reminder in Romans 5, God, that you, as you look at us, as you look at your people, in your unreasonable, unending, undeserved love, you pour it into us, you give it to us, and it's doing a work in us, God. We just want to say we worship you. Holy are you forever, and God, no matter what our day looks like, no matter how hot it gets today, no matter what is happening in us, we know that the people of faith, the suffering believer is called to say, I worship you, God, it is well with my soul. That the confession of our faith is a confession of not just life here, it is a confession of eternal life with you forever. It is a confession of not being myself, but a, fa- a confession of belonging to you, the Father. And so I just pray, Lord, in this moment, as, as, as the people of God sing together in response that this would be a confession of our faith this week. That all the things that are happening amongst us, oh God, the broken relationship, a drug or the alcohol addiction, the, the, the wayward child, the, the financial hardships, the worries about prices, the, the, the worries about our future, the, the worries, the, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a child, the, the, the inf- infidelity, the infertility, the, the pain of life, God, I pray that all of that would pale in comparison to what you have done that you, God, in your love, demonstrated. And that while we were sinners, while we were weak, you died for us. And I pray, God, that we would just sing over that pain. That we would sing over that suffering or the suffering of a friend or the suffering of a loved one. That we would sing over that. It is well with my soul. Lord, may you be glorified in this moment. And God, we know that your glory is for our good. So we sing in response to your love poured into this place. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, amen?